Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Success Harbor Podcast with George Mazaros, where it's all about making success happen for you. Hi, everyone. This is George Mazaros with Success Harbor, and I have Mike Mikalowicz with me. By his 35th birthday, Mike had founded and sold two multi-million dollar companies. Confident that he had the formula to success, he became an angel investor and proceeded to lose his entire fortune. Then he started all over again. Mike was driven to find better ways to grow healthy, strong companies. Mike is now running his third million-dollar venture. He's a former small business columnist for Wall Street Journal and is the former MSNBC business makeover expert. Mike is also a popular keynote speaker and the author of Profit First, The Pumpkin Plan, and The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. I'm very excited to have Mike on Success Harbor today. Welcome. Thank you, George. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for being here. I left a lot out of your bio. You have a very impressive uh, biography, and uh, I was very interested in learning about you during my research, and it's great to, great to have you here today. Oh, thank you. No, I appreciate it. It was a very nice introduction. <laughs> <laughs> you, built, you built and sold a couple of businesses. Mm -hmm. You had a lot of success, uh, as we mentioned in the, in the intro, uh, and then you, you lost it all as an angel investor. What did you do wrong to go from such highs to such lows or so much success to so much failure so fast yeah i can't think of uh another term besides arrogance you know i uh when i sold my second company uh i was convinced i knew all the answers to entrepreneurship i mean i sold two companies in a row uh and so i believed my own story i, I thought i was just this rock star at entrepreneurship so i became an angel investor started 10 companies but uh, I now lovingly call myself the angel of death because uh, I was just horrible at it and all these companies fell apart. And I realized I, d I didn't have the answer. I, di I didn't have all the solutions. I knew certain things that worked for me, but the vast majority of businesses, I didn't understand what they needed. Um, but, but it did inspire one thing. It inspired me to focus on profit. I, I always thought that profitability was when we had the big sale or a big customer swoop in, that it was an event. And what I realized after I had all this failure was that in my future businesses, I'd have to find a way to make profit and financial success a habit. Every single day, I had to be inching the business forward in a profitable way as opposed to waiting for these moments to happen. So why? what are some of the reasons that you failed as an angel investor? I mean, is it that you were looking at those businesses differently? I mean, you mentioned arrogance as, 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 as one, of, one of the things perhaps, but can you bring up maybe one or two specific examples why some of those uh, businesses failed? Yeah, so one thing for sure is I didn't have a niche focus. So I started up a company in the food services business. I was involved in a manufacturing startup. I was involved in a jewelry startup. Uh, I had one that made uh, fitness drinks. Uh, so it was in all different categories. Like to run something in food services and to run a manufacturer is two totally different animals. And then to be in jewelry, trying to build a business that does uh, sales via parties and stuff, it was just all different businesses. So it's all over the place. And Anything I'd learned in one business wouldn't apply to the next. It was just too diverse. I've come to understand that the riches are in the niches. Pick your thing that you're good at and, and stay focused in that area. Be become a true master at it. Go from good to mastery. 
So, so you're thinking that it's you have to actually focus on a specific type of industry or a specific type of business to create the greatest value uh, for yourself and for the companies that you invest in? That's right. Pick, pick, pick a category that you are really passionate about. Uh, and by the way, passion doesn't translate to success. A lot of people say, oh, if you're passionate, you'll be successful. I think that's a total mistake. But what I do know passion brings about is persistence. When I'm really excited about something, I'll stick with it. And that stick-to-itness, that persistence, is one of the necessary elements to success. Um, but the other thing is, is also identifying not just the category, the industry, or the clientele base that you're targeting, but inside your business, where are your strengths? For example, I, um, my, some of my talents are more toward the presentation side, sales and, and public speaking and stuff like that, but I am weak in the operations side. I'm strong at customer service, but I'm weak at product quality. So it's knowing the one or two areas that we're good at and then concentrate our, our, concentrating our efforts there and then hiring people or as we build up, maybe putting contractors in. If we're in a very early stage, maybe it's just free resources we can get hold of. But find people that are talented in the areas that we are not and, and put those people there. That That's key. We definitely can't do it all, even though we think we can. So let's talk about profit a, different, uh, a little bit. I uh, heard you talk about profit-first formula, where instead of sales minus expenses equals profit, um, you know, and, and profit is an afterthought, as, as, you, were, as you were talking about this. Uh, we are looking at sales minus profit ex- equal expenses. And how is this model better for, for our businesses? Yeah, so the historic... Um, vantage point has been following what's called the GAP formula, and the GAP formula states and stands for Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. What it states is that revenue, or yeah, revenue minus expenses, or sales minus expenses, equals profit. And logically, it makes sense. Sell what you can to who you can, collect. I'm mean, sorry, pay the bills that are that you have due, and then whatever's left over is profit. But the problem is that Profit is a leftover in that model. And when it comes to human nature, the behavior of most entrepreneurs, we never get to the profit part. We, we sell everything we can. We sell but to cover expenses effectively. And then there's no profit left. And what I found is this is actually a very normal behavior. It's not a good thing, but it's a normal behavior with all of us. And it's called Parkinson's theory. And basically what it states is that when a resource is made available to us, in this case money, it is human propensity to expand our demand for that resource, money, um, to match its supply. And just to give you an example of what has plays out for all of us would be uh, toothpaste tubes. When you buy a brand new tube of toothpaste, we squeeze that toothpaste tube, we, we use the toothpaste lavishly on the, um, we put a long bead on the toothbrush. You may be, you know, some of it may fall in the sink and we're like, who cares, I got more toothpaste. But conversely, when that tube of toothpaste is nearly empty, empty. we squeeze everything out of it. We're bending it. We're biting on the tube. And, and in this case, if, it, if a bead of toothpaste falls in the sink, you know, we're taking that toothbrush, toothbrush and digging into the sink and scooping it back out. And that's Parkinson's theory. What it states is that when something is highly available, the brand new tube of toothpaste, we use it in excess and we have no concern for its use. Conversely, when it's almost empty, we become very sparing of how we use it. 
And the tr- same is true with money. If we sell and then pay expenses first, we are giving ourselves kind of a, a full tube of toothpaste, and we use it subconsciously, lavishly. But if we sell and then take our profit out first, a predetermined percentage, and, and tuck it away and hide it away, we're basically squeezing down that tube of toothpaste and giving ourselves a small empty tube. And now our behavior changes dramatically. When it comes to spending money in our business, we realize we don't have nearly as much available as we we believe we have, and we spend more cautiously and smartly, and we become more innovative. We get the same things done with less money because we don't have as much money made available to us. The key is sell as much as you can, but take your profits out first. Predetermine that percentage, hide it away, and just watch the changes in your business. It's amazing what it will do for profitability. It's funny how many businesses are just happy to pay their bills, and they don't even look at profits. Um, what if you look at your business uh, with a profit-first formula to find out that you know there's just not enough, there's just not enough money in the business to cover your expenses? I mean, do you right. run across businesses like oh, that? Sure. And what advice? Because I, I mean, I would imagine <laughs> it's not a small number either. No, and so. George, this is true for almost every business that implements this system. Within a week or a month, I'll get a call or they'll talk to someone and say, I've been allocating, say, 20% of my sales to profits. And I had this big $10,000 check come in. I took 20%, so $2,000 and put in this profit account. I only have $8,000 left, but I got got $9,500 of bills here. I don't have enough money. When that moment happens, and it happens for every business, The key is this, to realize that moment is your business screaming at you and shaking you, saying you can no longer afford bills of this magnitude and be profitable. So when that moment happens, you you have to find a way to cut those bills. You may not take from your profit account. So in the immediate moment, you're going to have to navigate it. You're going to have to try to afford yourself time. You're going to have to cut things back. Maybe as new deposits come in, you allocate money for expenses. You'll pay from that. But you cannot pay those bills. But you also have to realize you have to cut the bills because if we keep these bills coming in, we're basically accumulating debt, future debt. So it will happen. You won't be able to pay your bills, and you have to realize that no longer can you steal from your profits uh, like you have been in the past. You just haven't been calling it the profits. You can no longer steal from yourself. You have to, um, you have to find a way to get it done with less money. You know, I don't know if this is a question for psychology or, or or whatever, but why do you think we think like that? Because I mean, it happens in you know to businesses and entrepreneurs, and it also happens to individuals. That you know, I mean, the same thing is true when you know when you talk about retirement savings. You know, people don't think of that. And you know, the same kind of the same logic applies to entrepreneurs when yes. you know they don't they don't set aside profit before everything else, uh, they almost don't even think about profit. Yep, and that is human nature. So this goes back to Parkinson's law, the the toothpaste tube I just shared with you. It it plays out in all aspects of humanity. And it's human nature to use up any resource that we make available to ourselves in its entirety. Here's another example. If, If you and I were discussing a project and that you're writing a proposal for me, and you said, Michael, I'll have the proposal to you in one week, chances are it will take you one week to get the proposal done. Now, if you and I have the same conversation about the exact same proposal, but you say it's going to take six weeks, it will likely take you six weeks to get it done. It's human nature to chew up the time or the money or the toothpaste 
in its entirety. So when it comes to our personal spending, same thing. We see a, a check comes into our bank account. We're like, woo, I got some money to spend, and we find ways to spend it. If there's excess money, we justify spending it by going out to lunch or dinner or buying a TV we wanted. And in business, it's no different. If there's excess money, we say, oh, we can buy that equipment we've always needed or whatever, and we justify it. But there was a study done um, that relates directly to this. It was a 401ks. A 401k is a retirement savings plan for an employee. And what they found is that the 401k has been the greatest savings mechanism in U.S. history because what happens is an employee has their retirement funds or savings extracted before they get their check. So an employee may have like $1,000 gross pay for the week, we'll say, just for a round number. Then they take, you know, uh, we'll say $200 out for uh, their retirement plan, their 401k, and maybe another $100 out for their taxes. The employee then gets the net check. So they get a check for $700. But over time, that $200 that's been allocated to the 401k starts accumulating. You know, over a year, that becomes $10,000. The um, money being allocated to taxes, when tax bills are due, the employee is looking at a refund or a mild, minor contribution. It's all been done in advance. And their lifestyle is adjusted very quickly to live off of their net pay, the 700 So that principle has worked historically for employees. I know, I'm just suggesting in profit first. If we can do it in our personal lives, and it's so effective, we need to now do this in our business lives, and we'll have the same amazing results. In, uh, in one of your books, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, you argue that fewer resources could actually benefit entrepreneurs. Can you give me an example to show uh, what you mean? Maybe uh, a company that you are investing in or maybe a company that you're working with now? Yeah, yeah. So my argument in Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, uh, actually all my books, Pumpkin Plan and Profit First, I mention that when we have fewer resources, I explain when we have fewer resources, that it forces us to become innovative. Money kind of dumbs us down because when we have money, we can throw it at uh, a problem and, and it'll, it'll buy a solution. But when we can't afford to buy a solution, we've got to find an alternative way to do it. A, a good example of this is um, a, pizza, a pizza shop in town. Um, I'm friends with them. This was just uh, – I wasn't billing them for consulting services. I was just meeting with them, and I said, Mike, we have a real problem here. We are one of seven pizza shops in this community. Uh, so any of our customers have seven pizza, ch- pizza places they can buy from. We're the new kids in the block – uh, we can't afford advertising, posting ads on the web and radio and any of that stuff. Uh, we have to hope that people find us. And then they did something innovative because they didn't have money and they were allocating. They followed this profit-first methodology. What they did is they realized that while there were seven active pizza shops, there was about 20 that had come and gone over the last two years. And of these other 13 that were now gone, they called every single one of them. Because some of these pizza shops had run a Yellow Pages ad. Some people, many of them had run an ad on the web or had a listing somewhere on the web. Uh, some of them even had radio spots that were still running. Most of them had signs on their abandoned building that had their phone number up there, you know, Joe's Pizza or whatever. They called all these numbers and said um, – they found out which ones were disconnected. Some of the numbers, because they've been out of business, were disconnected. They then asked the local phone company to redirect those phone numbers to them. And this is the miracle. 
people are calling That's genius. genius, right? People were seeing these signs up and calling the numbers and getting a disconnected number. Now this pizza shop was immediately getting phone calls for pizza. And and they were honest about it. They pick up the phone and say, Hey, you're calling uh, you know, Joe's Pizza, they're out of business. We're Eduardo's Pizza, we're available to serve you if you want ours. And of course they got the business. But, but I think that would have never happened if they had money because they would have said, Ah, oh, we'll buy advertising like everyone else. It's the lack of money that forces you to think outside the box. It, it can be your biggest ally, as scary as it is. So how do you think would a, a company, and, and you know most businesses never receive venture money, but right. there's a lot of companies that aspire to get venture money or some kind of an investment. So a company like that, where do you find that balance between, you know, let's say you receive a million dollars in funding, between, you know, spending the money but not spending it too fast but spending it fast enough on the right things yeah um it's kind of a difficult question it's like how long is a piece of string but Mm -hmm. i don't know if there is any any kind of advice that you have for those that are that are actually that have some some money but and they don't have profits yet either but there is some money that they need to they need that they have maybe a year or so to to run with yeah how how can they find that that perfect balance I suggest I have a really simple rule is if you found a piece of your business that is generating a profit, that's the best part to invest in. And so a lot of people, when they get funding, they use it for testing the market. They say, Oh, we're going to run advertising. We're going to market. And that's a mistake because they're throwing money into an unknown abyss. Conversely, if you're in business and and you have some product that is your most popular product and it's a profitable product, well, the investment should go into making more of that product and see if you can scale it. If you have done marketing in the past, maybe a radio ad, and you've measured the results on it, you have to make sure, by the way, any marketing you do, anything you do needs to be measurable. So instead of just running an ad and and trying to arbitrarily assign it to your sales, instead key your ads. You run a radio ad, give them a a number, the 800 number you call, give them the extension that's unique only to that ad so you can measure its response. But once you identify something that gets traction, is bringing results, that's where money should be invested. Because now it's about scaling. It's about doing what's already working on a bigger level. And money will now facilitate that fast growth. The mistake I see, like I kind of mentioned, is people throw money at arbitrary things, hopes and dreams. And that's where I see people burn through money relentlessly. And and I'm not just saying this, that it it can happen. It, It happened to me. I have received, I've raised funds and spent it embarrassingly on expanding the facility, getting more space, hiring people. But I didn't have a profitable uh, component of my business that I was investing money in. So that money, I burned through it very quickly, and uh, it took me a while to recover. Ironically, it was when I was out of money that I became more focused on profitability and was able to recoup all that. Yeah. I, I watched your uh, TEDx Hoboken talk where you talk about differentiation and becoming the best. Mm. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs out there that are desperately trying to differentiate in an economy with more and more competition and less dollars to go around? Yeah, so the, the question is, first of all, who's the market you're trying to serve? And, and focus on a very, very narrow category. The mistake your competition, I can guarantee, is making is you're trying to serve too broad of a market. And the reason we want to serve a very narrow market is we want to build a raving fan base that has that we're the only alternative for them. We're the only ones catering to them. Then we become extremely appealing. 
The, the second thing is to realize this critical kind of biological factor that it is the wiring of the human mind to notice things that are different. For example, if, if you and I were sitting, George, on the side of a highway just watching cars go by, they go blazing by. But the first time there is a you know, pink car, I'm sure maybe you've seen this in the real world, the first time you see a car of a color you don't expect, everyone notices it. Because here goes a silver, blue, silver, blue, silver, green, whatever. And all of a sudden a pink car goes by, we notice it. But I think we should ramp it up even more and be the guy walking the giraffe on the back of a giraffe down the highway. Now it's so distinct, it really gets noticed. So in our businesses, we have to be so deliberately distinct, it will catch people's attention. When you have people's attention, they give you the benefit of the doubt, but only for a short period of time. That's when we got to cater to them. And by focusing on a very narrow niche of people, a certain type of demand, we can uber cater to them, and then they'll be raving fans. So be different. Do everything to stand out. If, if you, whatever your competition does, ask the one question, what they're not doing, and that's the thing you should be doing. And then that will catch customers' attentions, cater to the customers so well that uh, they have no reason ever to leave. When, when looking for companies to invest in, what do you look for in the founders in terms of traits or characteristics that, that makes you want to invest in, in, in a company? So... I think I have one rule of thumb, and it's not that they say these words, but I can identify it now. If an entrepreneur says that their business is their soulmate, I'm very interested in that business. Where I see, you know, there's, there's a saying out there that a business is like a child. You start a business, and it's like your your child, and you got to raise this child. I think that's a horrible analogy. I think a business is really our Siamese twin. We share vital organs, we share a soul, and when an entrepreneur realizes that and is really, truly interconnected and intertwined with their business, I know I found someone that's going to have the stick to itness to see this through high and hell, you know, through high water and hell. And those are the businesses that I, I'm most attracted to. So that's as far as, as the founders. What about the businesses? What are you looking for in a business uh, as a potential investment? And the business itself is it's got to be distinct in the market, pointing back to different. Uh, I, I don't want the next pizza shop. There's already Pizza Hut out there, and there's already the new, number two Papa John's or whatever it is out there. Uh, that's very difficult to compete. But if there's a pizza shop that only makes pizzas that are the size of an automobile and they only do it for large events or something, that is pretty different and recognizable. So something that's distinct in the market. The second thing is niche focus. I, you know, I want to work with people that have identified a category that is being underserved or not being served at all. They're, they're the runoff maybe of other businesses, but they're not the key focus. When, it, when a small business is able to focus on a category that's not being served, I know that they can get a, a lock hold into that category for a sustainable period of time. And the great thing is that category, because they're underserved, now they're being served well, we'll talk about them, so automatic marketing happens. And then when another company tries to step in there, this other one already has a stronghold in there. Um, it's much harder for someone else to come in and supplant you. you. You know, niche has come up several times in this interview. Uh, you mentioned in the beginning uh, that the no f niche focus, and then you also talk about 
having a niche, having a focus on a small niche and, and really go deep there uh, to build a lot of raving fans for your business. How do you? How would you advise somebody that's struggling to find a niche? I mean, you know, it could be a web designer, it could be a, a, an attorney, it could be an accountant, all kinds of service, a consultant. Yeah. Uh, how does how does one go about trying to find a niche for for himself or herself for a business? There's two strategies. One is a, a very reflective strategy, and the question there is, what do I want, and what's unique about me that I can cater to? I typically recommend this for a brand new business. If you have no clients, I ask the entrepreneur to become very reflective if you're starting up. How would we cater to you like you've never been catered to before? And then can we find people who are like you? And the reason it's important to start that way is if you have no clients, at least you have a sense of one type of person yourself and how to cater to yourself. And maybe you can find other people like you. But the better way is once you have some clients on board is to categorize your clients. You know, not all clients are great clients. Not everyone's right, like mom said. Play favorites. And what you do is once you have some clients on board, identify the clients that spend the most money with you. They're showing you, by the way, through their actions, the more they spend, that they value you. People, I say, ultimately speak the truth through their wallets, not their words. So running a survey or asking customers, what do you think? Of course, people say everything's good and great because that's socially appropriate. But it's really them putting down money where their mouth is repeatedly that indicates they like you. But there's a second kind of variable, and it's what I call the cringe factor. Once you have a client that's spending money with you, maybe you have multiple that you like, and they're spending, I'm sorry, they're spending a large volume with you, you now need to identify the ones that you like. And sometimes that number one or two customer may be spending a lot of money, but they're really difficult to do business with. They're real nags. Uh, they're no fun. And it's the intersection of your best clients, they pay you the most and you like them, that are the clients that you want to replicate. That's your niche. So once you identify who your best, say, two or three clients are that you love doing business with, meet with them. Take them out to lunch. Interview them. Ask everything about their business. Understand their industry better than they do. Ask them where they hang out. Ask them where they congregate. Because, you know, birds of a feather flock together. Once you know your best customer, I mean, really, really know them and know where they congregate, you will find other customers just like them, and you'll start building your niche. Sounds good. Let's talk about time management a little bit. Uh, entrepreneurs struggle with managing their time. As an entrepreneur yourself, uh, a serial entrepreneur, how do you determine the best use of your time? What What is your process to identify the activities you need to perform to meet your business goal? And the reason I'm saying this is because every day you wake up, there is a million, million different things you could be doing. Yeah. So, so to succeed, what are, how do you prioritize on what am I going to do today, this week, and this month? So it's a good question. I, you know, I've been reading lots of books like <clears throat> excuse me, Getting Things Done and different books, and, and there was insights there. But ultimately, I came up with a system that works for me that has been spot on. And uh, actually, I share it in, the, in Profit First in that book. But here's what the this, this simple system is. I used to assign tasks to myself with due dates. I got to get this done by this day, get that done by that day. And I realized I was prioritizing on time, but I wasn't prioritizing on three variables that are mission critical. The first variable is, will this task make money for me in the near future? Am I going to make money? If I do this, will I make money in the next 60 days? If so, that's an important thing that needs to be prioritized. The second thing is, is this for an existing client? 
you know, if I'm not taking care of my existing clients, that is a road for failure. I mean, that's a path to disasterville. I got to take care of my existing clients. And I also know if I Uber cater to them, that the best marketing force is my existing clients. So I prioritize on money and clients. And then the third thing is systems, meaning if it's something I can develop and then the day I'm done with it going forward, it can be done automatically or by somebody else. Now I've relieved that ongoing responsibility for me. So what I do, George, is I have, as tasks come up, I write everything down. No matter what it is, I write it down. Then, before doing anything, I prioritize them with smiley faces for clients, dollar signs for things that generate money, and infinity signs for something that's a system. And sometimes some of these tasks, I'm looking at my list now, uh, I have one here that's a dollar sign and smiley face, meaning it'll make money in the next 30 days and it's for a client. Well, the thing with the most symbols gets done first. And then the thing with the least symbols gets done last. And I also find out that many of the tasks I write for myself have no symbol, meaning it's not going to generate money, it's not going to satisfy a client, it's not a system. They're still busy work, but they're definitely not priority. And ever since I did the system, money has flowed much faster into my business. I have much happier clients, and I have more systems and more processes than ever. So that's how I do it. That's great. Uh, you're a serial entrepreneur. You you started multiple businesses and you you succeeded with them, and and you managed to do that over and over. If if somebody's listening, uh, either they're you know they're thinking about starting a business or they're in the very early stage of of starting a business, what do you think would be the one thing, or what what do you think would be the first thing they would need to know to set them on 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 the path to success? If it's a trait or a characteristic or something they need to focus on. Yeah, well, I'll, if I can answer that in two pieces, I, you know, I think there's a lot of interest in or lots of discussion around serial entrepreneurs. From my experience, there's no prestige in that. There's no honor in serial entrepreneurship. Not for me. Um, I thought it was because what my belief was pump and dump, build something fast and sell it, build something fast and sell it. But what I really realized is that for a business to be wildly successful, it needs that stick to itness. It needs someone that's going to be there and really cultivate the business for a long time. And yes, it'll make lots of money, and that's great and important, but it really needs to have that essence of the founders. I mean, if you look at Microsoft, Facebook, like, you know, Zuckerberg is still there. Bill Gates is there. Steve Jobs saw his uh, Apple through multiple iterations. So I just one thing I like to warn people about is whenever I make a call to a serial entrepreneur, I kind of cringe because I don't want other people to think that that's a great decision. But the other thing is to realize that success as you define it won't happen overnight. It may, but usually overnight takes 20 years or somewhere in between. And I think a lot of us get jaded because we see Mark Zuckerberg or we see what happens with these internet startups that they start up out of nowhere and then, you know, look at all the money uh, they're making. And we want to have, you know, billionaire status within a year or two. From my experience, that is so far from the norm. That's atypical. That's why it's in the news. That's why it's so odd because it's so odd and so atypical. That's why Mark Zuckerberg and people like that are all featured. The norm for most of us entrepreneurs is it's it's a fight. It's a long time fight, and there's moments where we get big breaks, and and many moments where we get small breaks. So you have to stick to it. You got to capitalize every day, every opportunity, make a little bit of profit all the time, and then when the big things come your way, you got to be in position to grab that tiger by its tail and and ride it in. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I'm glad you brought up Zuckerberg because I remember when somebody offered to buy Facebook for over a billion dollars and people were calling him stupid and arrogant yeah, yeah, yeah. and all those things. Yeah. But it kind of enforces the point that you were making that, the, you know, it's not really just about the money, you know, for, for a lot of these people. And if you just think about the money, it's going to be hard to succeed. Very hard to succeed. You know, it's funny. I, I, someone came up to me and said, Mike, you have all these experiences with business. You've seen the upside. You've seen the downside. You know, I wouldn't want to compete against you because uh, because I'm afraid you you know so much more you could kind of kick my ass. And I said, well, what business are you going into? And I think it was in the music industry or something. I said, well, how passionate are you about it? They said, this is my life. Like I love this industry. I said, now realize this: if I go in and I have a million dollars of of backing investing, you know, investment funds, if I have all this entrepreneurial experience, I go to the exact same industry as you you will still kick my ass because you're the one who loves it. And it's the person that has this passion for it that will have persistence. When, when it's not working, you know, month six or month 12 or month 18th for me, I'm looking for the next venture where I can make money. But the person who's doing it because it connects with their soul is the one who's going to stick to it. So I, I always bet on the jockey as opposed to the horse. I, I bet on the guy who just loves the ride and they're in for it for the ride and know that inevitably – success is going to come their way with just a couple of the right moves. Well, Mike, I want to thank you for coming on Success Harbor today to share your story and your wisdom. How can people connect with you to f or find out more about your books and some of the services that, uh, that you provide? The best place to go is Amazon.com. And the reason I say it's the best place if you want to get the books and stuff is that's where the best deal is. You, you can't get a better price. And if you are on Kindle Unlimited, you can get at least two, maybe even all three of my books for free. So go there. Um, if you want to learn more about me, please visit MikeMichalowitz.com. Maybe you can put that in the show notes, George, because oh, that's will. the worst name, to <laughs> worst name to spell. But if someone's just listening in there in their car and they want to Google it, give your best stab at Mike Michalowicz. The, the nice thing is because I'm the only person on this planet, I believe, with that name, that it's very findable. And on Mike Michalowicz, there are free articles. There's chapter downloads for my books. I blog every single day, and uh, if you decide to even subscribe, I share 10 articles I wrote for the Wall Street Journal when I was writing for them. These are my 10 most popular articles of all time for the Wall Street Journal, and uh, you get those when you sign up. So the URL is going to be in the uh, show notes, but uh, just in case, it's M-I-K-E-M-I-C-H-A-L-O-W-I-C-Z.com. So, but it's going to be the show notes, so don't worry about the spelling of it. Mike, thank you, and I wish you much success going forward, and I really appreciate you coming on Success Harbor to share your story. Thanks, George. I'm wishing you the same. Much success. Thanks, for everybody, for listening. Bye.